When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Whistle Stop, a podcast of the presidency. I'm John Dickerson of 60 Minutes. Magazine readers turning the rewarding pages of a worthy periodical in 1924 would have found themselves face-to-face with an advertisement for the RCA Radiola Super Heterodyne Radio. In the ad for the brown wooden box with knobs the size of gem donuts, they would have read the following copy. No influence needed this year for a gallery seat at the big political conventions. Get it all with a Radiola Super Heterodyne. When the delegates march in, their banners streaming when the bands play and the galleries cheer. Be there with the Super Het. Hear the pros and cons as they fight their way to a platform for you. Hear the speeches for the favorite sons. The sudden stillness when the voice of a great speaker rings out. The stamp and whistle and shrill of competitive cheering. Hear the actual nomination of a president. It used to be all of the delegates' wives and the big folks of politics. Now it's for everybody. Listen in. Get it all with the newest Radiola. This is part two of our examination of campaigns as a consumer experience and what effect they might have on governing. Hi, I'm Jeremy Stahl. I'm Slate's jurisprudence editor. Ordinarily, I edit our courts and legal coverage from the comfort of my home office in Los Angeles, but for the next month and a half, I will be locked in a lower Manhattan courtroom with the rest of the press, a jury of 12 New Yorkers, Justice Juan Marchand, prosecutors, Trump's defense team, and the former president himself as history unfolds. I've temporarily moved myself and my family from Los Angeles to New York to cover this case firsthand, like I have done in other cases, including the Paul Manafort case, the Roger Stone criminal trial, and Donald Trump's first impeachment. I'm hoping that my background knowledge of the many, many criminal travails of our former president can offer something to you, Slate's listener. Over the next several weeks, you'll be hearing from me on Amicus, Sleet's legal podcast, and in articles on Slate.com, from the jury selection to the opening arguments to the witness testimony and cross-examination and the prosecution's case and the defense's case, and ultimately to a final verdict. We will be providing you wall-to-wall coverage throughout the entirety of the trial as it unfolds from the courtroom. There's no way I'd be able to do it without the support of Slate Plus. So if you're not already a subscriber, please join today by clicking Try Free at the top of the Amicus show page on Apple Podcasts or visit slate.com slash amicus plus to get access wherever you listen. Thank you so, so much. Our whistle stop today is October 19th, 2016. Florida Republican Senator Marco Rubio, the defeated GOP aspirant for the presidency, is asking his party not to play by the modern rules of politics. WikiLeaks has disseminated damaging information about Hillary Clinton, and Senator Rubio will not discuss it. He doesn't want his party to either. Our intelligence officials, who are not partisan people, have told us this this is the work of a foreign intelligence agency. 
And uh, I, we cannot be a country where foreign intelligence agencies uh, can interfere or influence our political process. What I would say to my Republican colleagues, some of whom may be disappointed by the position I've taken, is today it's them, tomorrow it could be us. That foreign government, of course, was the Russians. They hacked the emails from Hillary Clinton's campaign chairman and gave those emails to WikiLeaks. WikiLeaks then released them on the precise schedule aimed at sowing the most mischief in the presidential campaign. Mischief, of course, that was for Hillary Clinton. They did this, the U.S. government subsequently told us, in consultation with advisors to the Trump campaign who helped WikiLeaks know the politically opportune moment to release the damaging goods. The director of national intelligence had announced in October of 2016, while the campaign was still going on, that there was this Russia to WikiLeaks pipeline. This is just a month before the election that they did so, and that is what Marco Rubio, a member of the Senate Intelligence Committee, was referring to when he said he would not talk about the WikiLeaks material. How fussy! The material from WikiLeaks was out there. The press couldn't stop talking about it. They had no problems with jabbering on about this material that everybody knew was the result of foreign countries' espionage. This was something that could seriously help the Republican nominee get elected, and yet Rubio was arguing that something more important was at stake. He was the only one on his side to do so. Rubio's version of presidential campaign morality harkens back to an earlier time, like the time when politicians wore powdered wigs and rode horses. In those days, candidates acted with virtue in order to get the job. Perhaps they also had virtue themselves. Sure, we'll grant them that. But even if they didn't have virtue, the structure of politics at the time made them behave as if they did have virtue. In order to be seen worthy of the job of the presidency, a job founded on virtue— and the virtue of its occupant, which you'll remember from our misnamed four-episode trilogy on the Constitutional Convention, a candidate had to show you had virtue in the things you did before you got the job to see if you were worthy for the actual job. This wasn't just about appearances. The founders believed that even the most stoutly virtuous presidents would be susceptible to the corrupting influences of power. So they hoped for a candidate who had as, had as much virtue as possible so they could resist the sway of power matched with ambition. This is why the character question used to matter. It wasn't exactly a sin or lack of sins that a candidate would have engaged in prior to the presidency that mattered. In other words, it wasn't the specific sin or, or virtue that you displayed on a specific topic. But more generally, what did your private behavior say about your capacity to have virtue in the face of ambition spiced with the power that comes from being leader of the free world? Now, we may not wear powdered wigs anymore, other than quietly in the plenary sessions in the rec room in the basement, but human nature is still the same. Ambition, character, and power are still in the air as much as gravity, oxygen, and sunshine beam down on our heads in the same way they did in colonial America. We know character as displayed in campaigns doesn't matter anymore, however, because we now elevate people who show a lack of character as character as it would have been previously defined by the powdered wig set. It is proof of the presidency now that you'll do whatever's necessary to win, that you have the fire in the belly, that you have, quote unquote, what it takes. What it takes is the name of the famous Richard Ben Kramer book on the 1988 campaign. And that 88 campaign and the systematic dismantlement of Michael Dukakis was considered the nastiest modern campaign before the 2016 contest. 
George Bush's campaign manager, Lee Atwater, on his deathbed apologized for what he called the naked cruelty of his strategy for tearing apart Michael Dukakis. But there was a keen difference between the campaigning of 1988 and the governing of the president who won in that election. The keen difference was this. George Bush showed that he, what he, that he had what it takes to win, but his presidency was marked by significant acts of restraint. Arguably, some of the most significant acts of restraint we've seen in the office, as previous Whistle Stop listeners will remember, from the Bush episodes on the 1990 budget deal and the fall of the Berlin Wall. You could also add uh, not going into Baghdad after the first Gulf War. Donald Trump had what it takes in 2016. He clobbered Rubio in the primaries and late in the general election against Hillary Clinton, Trump not only used the WikiLeaks material, he called out the press for not making enough out of it. WikiLeaks has provided things that are unbelievable, candidate Trump said at a rally in Colorado and then accused the media of not making enough of the leaks. The media, you have to remember, is an extension of the Hillary Clinton campaign. It's an extension. And without that, she would be nowhere. Candidate Trump at the time also devoted some uh, Twitter action to calling out the media for not making enough of the WikiLeaks material, which he, who had been briefed by intelligence officials, you'll remember, of course, that the candidates late in the game get intelligence briefings in order to be up to speed uh, with what's happening in the intelligence. He knew from the briefings that the WikiLeaks material had come from Russian intelligence also You'll be reminded the news was public by then. Nevertheless, Kennedy Trump had what it took. He showed no qualms about benefiting from the Russian intelligence. Commander-in-chief has a different obligation as president. The uh, president is both the chief law enforcement officer of the country and also the government official whose primary job it is to protect national security. As such, the president has a duty to protect against foreign espionage. That's a different duty than just a campaign candidate trying to get to the presidency. Any president who is also obviously a candidate for re-election nevertheless has this other set of duties. To use the product of foreign espionage for a president's personal purposes in a campaign would be contrary to the job to which the president had been elected. It would give comfort to an enemy because friends don't steal campaign dirt and then pass it on for altruistic motives. So a president who were to do, who would take this kind of information would in fact be giving comfort to the enemy. It's also, by the way, illegal to benefit from this material. George Stephanopoulos asked the president a few uh, months ago if he would accept stolen intelligence from a foreign country now that he was the president. Your campaign this time around, if foreigners, if Russia, if China, if someone else offers you information on an opponent, should they accept it or should they call the FBI? I think maybe you do both. I think you might want to listen. I don't, there's nothing wrong with listening. If somebody called from a country, Norway, we have information on your opponent. Oh, I think I'd want to hear it. Our investigation in these two episodes is whether our contemporary campaigns and their emphasis on consumer techniques has affected the way we look at the presidency and the way presidents behave. There used to be a line between campaigning and governing. Does that line still exist? What changed from the founder's conception of a virtuous non-campaigning president to what we have today is contained in that 1924 radio ad. Americans felt shut out of their government and its rituals for picking the men, and it was men, who would govern their affairs. Increasingly, political parties in the federal government moved away from the virtuous model to one where the president was the true representative of the people. Congress represented narrow fiefdoms. The presidency was the one office that was directed that directed all the people. And if the office was going to represent all the people, well, that office had to be closer to them. 
Political parties didn't hand over power to the presidential candidates willingly. In the 19th century, the parties were in charge of the electoral process. They turned out enormous crowds, handed out patronage jobs, and made Americans feel like that they were a part of a grand social club. Highly, highly partisan time, but also people were very, very involved. Now, the people that were involved in party party politics in the 19th century weren't exactly narrowing their eyes on the small print of policy papers, mind you. It was more uh, party boosterism in keeping with the hard cider sloshing around that you'll remember from the whistle stop about the uh, 1840 campaign. I will overemphasize for a fact presidential candidates were were incidental to this process. In the 19th century, how incidental? When the Whig Party nominated General Winfield Scott in 1852, party bosses worried that the oratund and self-important general, who liked to refer to himself in the third person, would get into office and think General Winfield Scott had gotten himself into office. I know you made him, and we've got him, and it's better Scott than anyone else, one New Yorker confided to William Seward in August of 1852. But I'm a little afraid if elected, he may be apt to say, my own right arm hath gotten me the victory. Political parties were wary of having any candidates who might think they had anything to do with their own election. They might get uppity and get notions once they got into the presidency. That account, by the way, is from Gil Troy's See How They Ran, an indispensable book if you want to study the history of the presidential campaigns. So this starts to change in the turn of the century. Parties start to fade. Candidates start to take charge of their own campaigns. Now, this matters uh, because once the person who will govern is in charge of whipping up the crowds and putting the asses in the seats, the process starts to pick for people who can demonstrate those attributes. Now, this wasn't just about winning campaigns. There was a governing reason to start to see presidents as the people's true representative because it tightened the bonds between people and the president. Woodrow Wilson was one of the chief advocates of this. His argument was that Congress was sclerotic, captive of those party bosses and machine interests. A president then needed to be in constant touch with the people as a counterweight to that sclerosis in in, uh, Congress. The president under this model was not to do as the people said. He wasn't a weather vane, but he was supposed to use, again, mostly he's, well, of course, always only he's so far, but use the strong signal from the people to then do what the people, what the president thought right. So the people would give you an earful and then you would use your reason and judgment to make the right decision. You'll remember we talked about a lot of this during the Wilson episode, the League of Nations uh, Wilson uh, whistle stop. The conception of the office of the presidency turned on a connection between the people and their president. Not it wasn't it wasn't into something that was bad, right? The former view was grubbing for votes by peddling promises to the public was a sign of a lack of virtue. Now we see the ability to whip up the crowd as part of a true sign from the people. Campaigns would be a venue for presidents to be in touch with the people, and the people in turn could be in touch with their presidents. How neat. A sturdy whistle-stop listener will remember that this was the rationale candidates used to convince their parties that they should listen to the people by paying attention to the results of primary elections. Teddy Roosevelt made this argument in 1912, Eisenhower in 1952, Kennedy in 1960, Reagan in 76, McGovern in 72, and it's pretty much been common after that. If the candidates have to whip up the crowds and the parties aren't very good at it anymore and governing is related to that skill of whipping up the people, then it was quite natural that candidates would be encouraged to and embody the consumer techniques used in private enterprise that keep us all clamoring for things that we don't really need but seem to suddenly develop a deep desire for. Candidates would start using the stuff to hawk goods. 
That's why we started with that radio ad. The ad itself matches the style of selling candidates. Vote for Joe and you won't be shut out of the process anymore. And the ad identifies a place in time when voters are ever more asking for and seeking and being appealed to by active participation in the political process. This evolution in the process of selling candidates can take place over the course of American history because there is a lot of elasticity in how we elect our presidents. There are really no rules for doing this. I mean, the founders thought about how to arrange the distribution of power in the presidency, but they didn't quite think through how you actually go about picking a president. They left in place a system to be improvised by the traditions of the times. In 1817, Senator Mallon Dickerson, no relation, put it this way. No representative has been elected or appointed by a rule so undefined, so vague, so subject to abuse as that by which we elect chief magistrate of the union. Congressman George McDuffie, years later, thundered, we have no constitutional provision at all to regulate the election of a president. These two quotes are from The Presidential Game by Richard P. McCormick. If people could be convinced that Pledge had that lemon-fresh scent, perhaps they could be convinced that my plan for prosperity was solid. In our last episode, we walked through that history of selling candidates as consumer products, though since, since recording that episode, I found a few other corkers that are worth entertaining briefly. When the radio came into the scene, it had a measurable effect on politics. First, for Coolidge, it helped, but not for the reasons you might expect. We usually associate modern technologies with an increase in superficiality, and that, in fact, was a little bit true with radio. But for Coolidge, he said he did well on radio because he didn't have to wave his arms around and make a big show on the stump uh, the, way he, the way other candidates did. I am very fortunate that I came in with the radio, Coolidge said. I can't make an engaging, rousing, or oratorical speech, but I have a good radio voice. And now I can get my message across to the public without acquainting them with my lack of oratorical ability. But as radio came into the presidential game, it started to change the substance of politics. Franklin Roosevelt mastered this. He wasn't the first to use radio, but mastered it. And then candidates started to change the mix of content in their speeches. In a study of presidential acceptance speeches, in and around the time that Franklin Roosevelt mastered the radio, the following was found. Speeches became 60% shorter, and only half the words were devoted to issues, compared to the 84% of words that were devoted to issues in the previous 30 years of Democratic acceptance speeches before Franklin Roosevelt mastered the radio. So once radio became the accepted way of communicating, in at least with respect to a measurement of democratic acceptance speeches, they became shorter and lighter, focused more on vision than specific policies. Of course, any time a new technique was used to sell a candidate, the opponent, who hadn't been smart enough to move first, cried foul. When, when Eisenhower ran television ads in 1952, his, his opponent, Adelaide Stevenson, sniffed, I think the American people will be shocked by such contempt for their intelligence. This isn't ivory soap versus palm olive. Stevenson aide George Ball predicted that, quote, presidential campaigns will eventually have professional actors as candidates. That was going too far. Of course, that would never happen. John Kennedy made the pitch for putting the candidates before the television and the people because there was this there was a benefit to doing it using modern technology. Um, and he put it this way. The searching eye of the television camera scrutinizes the candidate and the way they are picked 
Party leaders are less willing to run roughshod over the voters' wishes and handpick an unknown, unappealing, or unpopular candidate in the traditional smoke-filled room when millions of voters are watching, comparing, and remembering. So Kennedy arguing in the sense that technology was making a democracy better. Once you remove the stink of superficiality from using modern consumer techniques of radio, TV, appearing on talk shows, and change it for being a sign that the candidate is unfit from office, unfit for office, into a sign that a candidate is uniquely fit and only uh, ability to divine that through the use of this technology, well, then it seems to be you hook the electorate and the electoral process up to the ever-advancing march of consumer product development. Don't worry that this behavior will cheapen us. To the contrary, it will make us more discerning and better democratic actors. Now, this does not seem to be the case today. Our technology, the way we have been conditioned to use it by social media and consumer forces and its interaction with the high partisanship of our moment, are conditioning us to appreciate the immediate and the temporary instead of the scratchy habits of mind like restraint and patience that are actually necessary for discernment and governing. I'm going to tee up here a couple of social media conditions that encourage this impulsivity and cocooning uh, by my lights. First, a word about reason. Reason, reason, reason. What is it good for? In the Jeffersonian model, our reason and logic help us evaluate the world and pick the right course of action. Of course, as a discerning whistle-stop listener, you'd sign up to this. You would salute it. It is our state flag. But what if we're wrong? That definition of reason has for generations bumped up against the idea that we're not very good at using reason. We're shot through with biases, confirmation biases, and all the other biases in the biasy basket. We know about these biases because we see them every day in online debates and political discussions. So what if reason was evolutionarily created not to help individuals achieve greater knowledge and make better decisions, but instead to make us better at fighting online? That's my version or my spin of uh, on an argument by Hugo Mercier and Dan Sperber, who uh, have a book called The Enigma of Reason. They argue that the main function of reason is to produce justifications for ourselves and arguments to convince others. If this is so, then the biases and tricks and whataboutism and illogic used to defend the plainly loony is not a break with reason, but in keeping with its evolutionary design. We do what we're going to do and then use reason to defend what we've done. It is the mo in motivated reasoning. Okay, now to some of these social media, uh, aspects of social media that may affect the way we govern or certainly affect the way we adjudicate political issues and campaigns. The first is the cultural change that has affected our politics in the epic rise in the market for self-expression. This started long before the first tweet, of course, closer to the age of the first game of Pong. But we had the Depression generation, which was shaped by values and institutions based on the ideas of shared sacrifice. Its members maintained social bonds and the self-sacrifice necessary to maintain cohesion. It created the structure underneath the collective action of government. It It was the glue in the social contract, which is a weird thing to say because contracts don't require glue, though they are binding. And verily, they can be sticky. But in the next generation after the Depression uh, generation, that sense of self-sacrifice started to evolve. Some would say crack. Some would say disappear. Individual fulfillment moved into the forward position or at least was coming up on the outside as libertarians from the right wanted to do their own thing and cultural liberals kicked off the constraints that put conformity over individual freedom and, importantly, equality. 
So perhaps no greater exemplar of this change in generational norms is the split between John McCain and Donald Trump. McCain committed himself to an early life in his country's service, which caused him to be shot down during the Vietnam War. He was held prisoners for five years, often living in a dark box. And he lived off and gained sustenance from those ideas of America and his duty to it that were a part of that social contract. Donald Trump represented the other half of the generation. Born into privilege like McCain, his life of self-fulfillment and self-aggrandizement made him one of the most well-known celebrities on the planet. He was and is for many the embodiment of the American dream of extraordinary wealth and comfort. In keeping with this, Trump told Howard Stern in 1997 that avoiding sexually transmitted diseases from many women he slept with was his personal Vietnam. He joked with the shock radio host, I feel like a great and very brave soldier. Social media allows us all to engage in this personal self-promotion. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram dominate our private lives now, and our public heroes are those that we give that give us a steady stream of costume changes on the hour to keep us coming back for that dopamine hit. Contrast the greatest generation ethos of self-abnegation with mukbang, the YouTube sensation where people eat to excess and other people line up by the hundreds of thousands to watch them on YouTube lard up their pie hole with pies. The planet is now occupied by influencers, citizens who, through their acts of self-expression on social media, have become famous conduits to America, sought out by advertisers to hypnotize the public. When Michael Jordan was at the top of his game, Gatorade turned the expression, be like Mike, into a very catchy ad. Jordan was one of the greatest basketball players ever. Now everybody wants to be like Mike, but Mike is the guy who stands next to the expensive car flexing in a funny hat. Social media flattens context and encourages us to respond to the world in front of us. This hypercharges our instinct to think candidates should be evaluated in the moment, in the performance, in the act of self-expression, not by their past. This started with Kennedy in those debates with Nixon. Now, And it was Kennedy's theory of the case. Watch me campaign, and that means I'm good for the presidency. But watch me television. Watch me on television, the performance Now social media encourages our inclination to think of the candidate who performs well is fit for the office even more. Did a candidate have a good launch? Were they commanding on stage? Did they pause too long to give a debate answer? What does it say that they cooked their dinner the way they did on that online video? All the presidential qualities required to do the job, reason, experience, temperament, restraint, and facing having faced a tough challenge, they're all either overshadowed by the performance of the moment or the performance of the moment allows people to intuit all of those characteristics and attributes into a candidate based on a performance in the moment. Donald Trump, of course, benefited from this immediacy and performance-based campaigning in two ways. As a reality television star, he gained notoriety as a businessman from playing a kind of cartoonish sort of businessman on The Apprentice. As a candidate, Trump embraced the show both at rallies and on constant television appearances, rewarding audiences and television networks with a string of fresh, instantaneous hits of dopamine. In 1948, Truman was criticized for going, quote-unquote, off the cuff. Whistle-stop listeners will remember that. In the world of immediacy, though, everything is supposed to be off the cuff. Presidential use of a teleprompter, which Ronald Reagan helped perfect, is now seen as a sign of duplicity by some. I've always said, Donald Trump said, if you run for president, you shouldn't be allowed to use teleprompters. You'll remember Barack Obama got a lot of grief for using teleprompters. In 2020, the height of this phenomenon of weighing candidates in the moment was contained in a cover story in Vanity Fair that accompanied former Congressman Beto O'Rourke's presidential campaign launch. 
The piece described a, quote, near-mystical experience at a campaign rally during O'Rourke's failed Senate run, where O'Rourke's wife, quote, first witnessed the power of O'Rourke's gift. That re- and this power represented the rationale for his presidential candidacy. The candidate felt it too. I don't know if it's a speech or not, but it felt amazing, O'Rourke said, remembering this moment in his Senate campaign. This feeling of connection convinced the candidate he should make a go for the most powerful job in the world. I just knew it. I just felt it, O'Rourke said about his failed Senate run. In what the writer of the piece, without disparagement, describes as a politics not readily accessible by reason, O'Rourke was propelled by this feeling into a presidential campaign. It's probably not the most professional thing you've ever heard about this, but I just feel it, he said. Later in the piece, O'Rourke said, Man, I'm just born to be in it. The presidency, then, is an office based on performance feeling. The second element of social media influence in our elections is how it keeps us all knit together. Political psychologists long ago identified the power of groupthink. Now partisans are lashed together through social media and favored cable channels. And this kind of social endorsement means that they pass along the same news to each other. Partisans also engaged in bias processing, reacting to information based on their partisan predisposition. Those who somehow find themselves off-key for a moment are hastened back into conformity by social media. After a big political event like in a, a debate, say, studies show that partisans who form their own opinions, independent of the tribe, willingly steer their views back into the consensus. The Republican Party has experienced this kind of groupthink most acutely recently on issues from support for Russia to trade tariffs to interest uh, in the budget deficit. A poll show Republicans have reversed their traditional views to move more in line with the positions held by Donald Trump and Fox News commentators who affirm him. This, of course, undermines standards because instead of measuring a candidate and their views against a fixed standard, they're measured against whether they can uh, and whether that answer is the best answer through the use of reason and critical thinking. Debates then become all about winning uh, the fight of the moment. I'm not sure he's a conservative, Newt Gingrich said about Donald Trump, but he's the most effective anti-liberal in my lifetime. Going back, of course, to that idea of negative partisanship, voting less for someone and um, more against the other side. When the group gets involved through social media, our individual responses are deepened. When we encounter opposing views in the age and context of social media, it's not like reading them in a newspaper while sitting alone, writes Zineb Tufeki of the University of North Carolina, who studies the social impact of technology. It's like hearing them from the opposing team while sitting with our fellow fans in a football stadium. Online, we're connected with our communities, and we seek approval from our like-minded peers. We bond with our team by yelling at the fans of the other one. In sociology terms, we strengthen our feeling of in-group belonging by increasing our distance from and tension with the out-group, us versus them. If the stakes are high and personal and we have a rallying instinct, we'll applaud anyone who rallies to our side and won't mind the tactics that they use. As Tufeki says, belonging is stronger than facts. Or as political scientist Brendan Nyan says, partisanship is a hell of a drug. These forces exacerbated by social media make being exposed to new information like wearing an itchy sweater In one study, supporters and opponents of same-sex marriage were offered money to read findings that contradicted or supported their worldview. The participants in the study were willing to take less money to avoid reading 
those findings that challenged their initial positions. So, for example, if you were pro-gay marriage and you were offered $10 to read a list of 10 points arguing against gay marriage or $7 to read a list of items that supported your original view in support of gay marriage, you would take the $7. In this environment, candidates who stretch or lie don't mind being fact-checked. Indeed, they welcome it because the additional coverage from the controversy publicizes the original false, zesty claim. What they say might be sandwiched between criticism and sanction, but true believers lashed together through social media will throw away that bread. It makes some of them, upon hearing a debunking of a candidate they like and that is in their in-group, even more supportive of that candidate. As Donald Trump has said, I could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and still have support. Even a single exposure to false information increases subsequent perceptions of that information's accuracy, something psychologists call the illusory truth effect. In a study of dubious political claims, Yale psychologists found only a small degree of potential plausibility is sufficient for repetition to increase perceived accuracy of even the most implausible claims. So if you say something first, even if it's wrong and repeated enough, it gains a foothold. And we retain these beliefs even in the face of learning we're dead wrong because we don't want to admit that we were wrong in the first place. Recent research in the Journal of Experimental Psychology shows that, quote, social media platforms help to incubate belief in blatantly false news stories and that tagging such stories as disputed is not an effective solution to this problem. In other words, once a lie is repeated, continuing to repeat it is more effective with susceptible audiences than the power of a fact check to convince those audiences otherwise. A lie gets halfway around the world, goes the old expression, before the truth has a chance to get its boots on. The final way in which technology affects the way we see the opposition is something I refer to as preemptive whataboutism. For those of you who don't know what whataboutism is, it's the king weed of negative partisanship, the get-out-of-thinking device that can be deployed as an escape from any argument. Perfected by totalitarian regimes, and particularly the Soviet Union, here's how it works. When someone in your party is accused of falling short of a standard, point the finger at the other party to a time when some member of the other party fell short of a standard. Now, the other party doesn't need to have fallen short of the same standard, and by all means, it doesn't need to have been, a, to, to have been an offense of the same magnitude. It just has to be remotely related at all to the conversation. So, here's an example. Person A says... No one likes your party's health care plan to person B. Person A says it polls terribly. Person A says to person B, you're forcing it on the public. Person B responds, yes, but your president, person A, forced his tax plan on the public when he was in office. When deployed effectively, this gets person A, who made the original claim, who tried to measure a president against a fixed standard, it makes person A defend their president. The president's not in office any longer, but suddenly person A is defending them. At this point, person B has already won the day with their application of whataboutism. First, it has changed the subject. Suddenly, instead of talking about the standards of the president person B supports, the conversation is now about the behavior of person A's favored president. Secondly, every piece of evidence that person A deploys in defense of their favored president and why that president was not at fault, implicitly exculpates person B's president, who was the original target of the whole darn conversation. Caution. This does not work with the police, judges, or our mothers. 
If you work in customer service, by all means, do not deploy this. When a customer comes to you complaining that the airline has lost his family's baggage and you are the airline representative, it will not lead to job retainment. If you tell the poor soul withered from waiting in line to enter the lost luggage cell by the baggage dispenser that other airlines lose luggage too. If you're in a partisan fight where attention spans last no longer than the present, however, what aboutism should keep you from any friction in wrestling with facts of things that you find unpleasant? Now, how does this connect to our theme about consumer products? Well, when the other side's failings are kept in neon and kept extreme, there's little a home team president or candidate can do that can't be excused by the ready-to-rally who are constantly obsessed with the failings and potential failings from the other team. The way technology is involved here is it keeps things in neon. It keeps things extreme. To keep us hopping and clicking, the attention barkers increase the thrills by making social media goods more extreme. Former YouTube programmer Guillaume Cheslow studied how algorithms designed to keep users on the site, the site being YouTube, amped up the content. The site's artificial intelligence was designed to maximize clicks and time spent online. If a video caused users to spend more time online, it was offered to others users, other users. So he found that searching is the earth flat around and following the recommendations five times that he discovered 90% of the recommended videos state that the earth is flat. A Wall Street Journal recently reported uh, having trying to help his son search for information about Saturn, the planet, quickly found himself routed to pro-Putin propaganda videos. In the political context, this can reward supporters of a candidate and party who believe in conspiracy theories or have extreme and destructive views. The extreme will make its way in front of the merely curious in a format where dodgy goods can appear similar to content put out by more reputable sources. Also, technology helps campaigns narrow cast to partisans by targeting an issue a person cares about the most or is likely to based on their consumer behavior, which campaigns study. Campaigns can direct messages right at people targeting their most emotional hotspots. This is red meat served just for one and just the way you like it. If the issue you care about the most about, I say, is abortion or gun rights or the contribution of fossil fuels to climate change, you'll be fed a diet of awful and alarming Campaigns and social media companies benefit from the same thing, keeping voters on the boil. This is why it feels like the public square is getting more awful. And there's a reason for that. Negative partisanship requires keeping us apprised of the other side's subhuman behavior. It's a trip we're already on. The Pew Research Center has been studying ideological attitudes since 1994 on the underlying questions of our politics. Things like, is healthcare a right for all Americans? And does government have a role in the private market, etc.? And it's found that in asking those basic questions of politics that the left and right are as far apart as they have ever been since 1994. And if the gap is wide, it's also deep. Liberals and conservatives are more apt to view the other side not simply as wrong, but now as evil. This negative view of the other party and willingness to treat them as subhuman coincides nicely with the technological imperative to always keep the material spicier. A subtle dig at an opponent is no longer going to do. It's the equivalent of, a, of movie violence. There was a time when showing someone getting shot was a big deal. Now every movie has to turn into a charnel house. When Microsoft's artificial intelligence Twitter account sampled online content to create Twitter posts, its calculations determined that it could create the most engagement if it published from the most vicious part of the public sewer. So it authored this beauty. Bush did 9-11 and Hitler would have done a better job than the monkey we have now. Donald Trump is the only hope we've got. 
Microsoft killed the account. Now, back to this idea of preemptive whataboutism. Preemptive whataboutism is even more powerful than regular old whataboutism, and it relies on this amped-up neon uh, toxic feeling about the other party. Instead of measuring a president against a fixed standard or against the qualifications of another candidate running against that president, a partisan compares the known qualities of a candidate, their candidate, with the imagined failings of the opposition. So conservative pundit, who is also a frequent Trump critic, Eric Erickson, deployed this in 2019 on the president's behalf. The president may be nuts in his behavior, said Erickson, but I'll take his crazy over the insanity the Democrats would unleash unleash on the United States. So measuring a president who has done certain things in office against imagined insanity of a nominee who hasn't even been named yet. In the 2016 campaign, the vulnerabilities of the American political conversation were so obvious the Russians took advantage of them. According to a bipartisan Senate Intelligence Committee report, the Russian Internet Research Agency's disruptive efforts reached 126 million people on Facebook, posted 10.4 million tweets on Twitter, unloaded 1,000 videos on YouTube, and reached over 20 million users on Instagram. The techniques they used took advantage of our psychological wiring and the patterns of permanent outrage and group sorting that pass for political debate in our social media age. The report reads like one of those political psychologist studies of our worst modern tendencies. Quoting from the report, they, meaning the Russians, created strong ties by posting a majority of content designed to generate in-group approval and camaraderie. Then they posted occasional content that was either designed to sow division from out-groups, explicitly partisan and election-related, or focused on a theme that Russia cared about. The goal was to stoke social, cultural, and political unrest by using disinformation and feeding it to a narrow category of users from uh, African-American or gay or uh, fans of Fox News. According to a second report uh, commissioned by the Senate Intelligence Committee, the Russian effort, quote, demonstrates a sustained effort to manipulate the U.S. public and undermine democracy to target U.S. voters and polarize U.S. social media users. The Russian effort targeted many kinds of communities within the U.S., but particularly the most extreme conservatives and those with particular sensitivities to race and immigration. So the Russians saw this vulnerability, saw the mix of partisanship and social media engagement and fed information into it knowing that uh, there weren't a lot of checks and application of reason, uh, but there was just a rapacious audience. Now, whether these methods were responsible for the election outcome is up to you, but the American vulnerability was obvious and glaring enough that it could be targeted by the Russians. In a process increasingly engaged in by alcoholics, the Russians put liquor bottles on every street corner. In exchange for doing what it takes, a norm had crept into America that was supposed to keep it from going down the tubes. And that norm was that the president would do what it takes to get elected, but then drop the low-rate stuff when coming into office. It was the political equivalent of the way Prince Hal treated Falstaff. I know thee not, old man, Prince Hal said when he came into power. The question for our campaigns and our presidencies now, though, is whether that instinct to govern differently than our impulsive campaigns is still a part of our culture. And if you would like it to be a part of our culture, how do voters search out for that quality, that governing quality in candidates when they evaluate those candidates, at least in part, on their ability to do what it takes?
And how do we search for this restraint impulse in ourselves, in the press, and in the electorate? Inattention merchants Tim Wu explains why our modern distractions are different than the amusements of the past. There were technological limits on what we could do to keep ourselves amused, he writes. Sustained periods of boredom were unavoidable. Today, boredom is an option. To the extent that boredom is a lack of stimulation, we have cured it. And this isn't necessarily a good thing. If you can endure boredom, you can devote yourself to deep and serious projects. If you can't endure boredom, how do you write a book or enter into reflection? Wu's questions present challenges for the presidency and electing presidents as well. If you can't endure boredom, how can you devote yourself to the project of elections? And how can we govern effectively, which requires patient-focused work? That's it for this edition of the Whistle Stop podcast. We'd love to hear what you think. Leave us a review on the iTunes store. It helps us spread the word. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. The managing producer of Slate Podcasts is June Thomas. Gabe Roth is the editorial director of audio. Our whistle-stop crackerjack researcher is Brian Rosenwald, the author of Talk Radio's America, How an Industry Took Over a Political Party That Took Over the United States. And Elizabeth Hinson is there every step of the way, answering one dumb research question after another from me in the Google document as I put this trail of excitement together. Thanks to Alan Pang of CBS Radio who helped make this episode happen on the CBS end as he always does. Mm-hmm.